Again, so this morning, last week was uh, the beginning of order. This week is the beginning of provision. Uh, again, this week, and, and we should do this every time we come to Scripture, but, but I'm, I'm really forcing us into this position as we look at the first few chapters of Genesis. We're looking at this chapter from the perspective of the intended audience, the wilderness-wandering Israelites. Now, I got to thinking last night, and we don't know when Moses wrote this. We don't know exactly when he wrote it. We don't know when he presented it to them. Um, we can... We have an idea that sometime, that he wrote Exodus after the Exodus, or at the very least along with the Exodus. He didn't write it before the Exodus. Um, so everything in Genesis is pre-Moses history. And then a little bit in Exodus is as well, there's the very beginning, some, some um, preliminary stuff. But starting in Exodus, it is, uh, Moses is a contemporary of what he's writing. So I don't know if he wrote this toward the end of his life, wrote the five books toward the end of his life. Um, I kind of think probably that's when he began to compile it, put it all down. I think his messages over the 40 years of wandering uh, were... Uh, uh, were uh, uh, God, not... I'm not, not compiled. Yeah, that'll work. Um, we're a compilation of what he wrote down. So as he's trying to encourage them, you know, he's preaching to them, remember that God did this in the beginning and so on, and then he began to write down. But we, we just don't know. It's probably, though, I think he compiled it, he wrote it at the end, but he was preaching it during those 40 years. Regardless, this message was for their mess. All right, that we looked at it last week. We're looking at it again this week. So whether he waited until the end to tell them all this stuff, or if he was preaching it, and again, I think he's preaching it because they need the encouragement as they wander. So that's, that's what I'm doing in my head. Let me, all that to say, that's the way I'm approaching this. Hearing these messages in Genesis as uh, as I wander through the desert as an Israelite. So that, that helps us, I think, focus on the intent of the passage. Now, we have, we, I mean, just theologians and Christians and scholars throughout the 2,000 years or longer have uh, tried to make chapter 2 fit with chapter 1 because we, we look at it and we think, oh, there's contradiction here. The, the order's different and, and the days aren't right. And, and, and he's describing things that he described differently in chapter 1. And, and so we've got to fix this, we think. And I don't think we do. I don't think it's a contradiction. Moses didn't think it was a contradiction. As he was receiving it from the Lord, he wrote it down as he got it. And I don't think it was ever a concern of his or of the people hearing that two, chapter 2 didn't match chapter 1 exactly because they, are, they have two different purposes. That's why we need to hear from the perspective of the Israelites and not take our understanding of science and try to squish that on top of it and, and make, a, make a, 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 a 
religious sandwich, you know, we take chapter one, then we put science in the middle, and then we take chapter two and put it on top of it. We try to squeeze that together and make it palatable. Stop. That's, that wasn't the point, and that's why I didn't spend a lot of time last week on the days, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time this week trying to reconcile the two because they're, they're really irreconcilable. There's, there, I mean, we could probably, oh, well, this is kind of here, and he's talking about here, but when we start doing that, what we have to do is we are admitting without admitting that chapter 2 has a completely different purpose than chapter 1. It's not a contradiction in points, it's a different purpose. God is not, again, in chapter 2, is not saying, this. I want you to understand the way I did creation. I know I told you I did it this way, but now I'm telling you I did it this way. And also understand that very likely the Israelites weren't getting this seven days apart like we do. We spend a time on a section, we talk about it, we move to the next section, we talk about it. This is all one narrative. Really, chapter 1 through 11 is like, one big story. So they would have heard this story you know, over and over and over again. So let's, let's remove from our mind, just like last week, we removed from our mind the idea that we had to make chapter one fit what we understand of science. Let's remove from the, our minds this morning the idea that we have to make chapter two fit within, between the lines or whatever of chapter one and and vice versa. What God is showing the Israelites is that he first ordered the chaos and then he made provision in the order or from the order. So he takes this chaos, he orders it, so see, everything's systematic, got it all worked out, and then let me tell you how I took the order and then tweaked, modified, designed, molded provision. After showing his ability to do one because the Israelites needed order in their lives, he's showing his ability to do the other because they also needed provision in their lives. Remember the quote of Van Til um, that I I shared with you last week. Uh, A biblical theology of God as creator, identifies him as originator, preserver, governor, and provider. And that's what we're focusing on today. Provider of the creation. We need to hear how Israel would have heard this message in their circumstance. Either currently wandering and not knowing for certain or not trusting for certain where the next meal is coming from, um, or being reminded at the end of the wandering of everything that had been done. You were provided for every step of the way. You know why? Because way back when, God provided every step of the way. As you go into the promised land that you didn't go into 40 years ago because you're disobedient, as you finally go in, What's the message? God provided in the wandering. God provided in the promised land. God will provide. So we we listen to this message. We listen to it as disobedient people, because I think that applies to us. 
and we hear God say, I'm your provider. That's our big idea this morning. God provides all that's needed for life, relationship, and service in Him. We're going to talk, he, the Genesis, Exodus, all of it talks a lot about people and, and, and nations and all that stuff. But throughout the Bible, God is the subject. God is the main character. So our main idea all points back to Him. God provides life so that we can have a relationship with Him. God provides relationship so we can have a relationship with Him. And God provides opportunities for work or service so we can work for or serve Him. Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is our passage. Read it along with me. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, uh, which flows through this entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat any tree of, from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's a lot here to, to digest. Uh, there, uh, there are a lot of points where we want to say, oh, he's talking about this and this. I mean, he names two rivers here that, that we know are still there. Tigris and Euphrates still exist. So there are a lot of opportunities for us to get unnecessarily bogged down in the details, and we don't want to do that. Details are important. Don't, don't hear me say, well, just kind of skim it and get the idea. I'm, I'm not saying that. But in every, in every message, in every Bible study, unless we spend literally weeks on this one passage, we have to make decisions about, all right, what is necessary for application at this moment? There can be multiple applications from a single passage. There's only one uh, translation. There's only one uh, intent behind the passage, but there can be multiple applications, and that's what we have to figure out. What is the Lord saying to us from this passage? Think what he's saying to us, at least today, is he's the God of provision. So when we come to the passage, first thing we see is 
Moses uses this phrase, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. We see the outflow of creation in verses 4 through 6. The, the records of the heavens and the earth, it's actually, the word there is a Hebrew word, toledot, which means generations. At, at the beginning of, of every major section of people in, the, in Genesis, it will say, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations. And, and it's clear that that is a new uh, a heading for a new section of Scripture that is now going to take the story in a different direction. The, the, usually the previous passages will say something about, you know, uh, for example, when it begins with Seth. Cain did all this stuff. He had these kids there. And, and that's not the text we're following. That's not the storyline we're following. These are the generations of Seth. And we get all of this and we begin to trace down through Seth. Interesting that the first time the phrase is used is, these are the generations, these are the offspring of the heaven uh, and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Now the heavens and the earth didn't create offspring, so we know that's not what it means. It's not talking about some cosmic uh, god and goddess that, that created anything or, or gave birth to anything. That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is, this is the story of, this is the, the, uh, the outflow, the progression from what God did in this big event in chapter 1 and how he narrowed that big event down to one. And in this case, that one is Adam. In verses 4 through 6, we have the first time we come across the covenant name of God. Verse 4, it says, uh, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice the inversion there. It was the generations of the heavens and the earth, or the records of the heavens and the earth. And now we've inverted it, the earth and the heavens, because the earth comes first. It's the place of prominence because that's what he's going to focus on, the earth. Let's get down to the earth and talk about what happens there. But we have this covenant name of God. It's been Elohim all through chapter 1. And now Moses uses the name Yahweh Elohim, covenant name and the name of power, relationship and power. Chapter 1, all about God's transcendence and power and his ability to create order from chaos, to create something from nothing. And now the God that can do all of that, that can create order from all of that, has these records of his creation of the heaven and the earth when he uh, had created the earth and the heavens. The relational God now has a purpose to then create man. Yes, man is, we've gotten the discussion of the creation of man in chapter 1. We, we know God created man, but now there is the purpose behind the creation of man. And verses 4 through 6 tell us that God started with blank and bare. When, God cre when he created, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, no plant of the field had yet sprouted. The shrub of the earth... Uh, or the shrub of the field, rather, is wild vegetation. So there, it, when he created the heavens and the earth, the land, the water, there wasn't anything wild growing. And then the next phrase, um, the plant of the field, that's cultivated vegetation. And there wasn't any cultivated vegetation because it says, the, uh, for Lord, the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, 
uh, and there was no man to work the ground. So obviously there was no cultivation because there was no irrigation. And there was no irrigation because there was no one to irrigate. There was no one to cultivate. Just we're getting the picture of God saying everything, just like I told you in chapter 1, wasn't chapter, there weren't chapters for them, but just like I told you, it, there was nothing and I created everything. But look, first I brought order, now I'm bringing provision. Wild stuff didn't grow, cultivated stuff didn't grow, because I hadn't created man yet. And in fact, it says that uh, some translations say mist would come up from the earth. Uh, some of your translations say river comes up from the earth. I think river is a better translation. also goes better with what the, the inability to even cultivate, because what they had to do in the desert was irrigate. They had to control the rivers uh, to get water where they needed it. It was chaos, right? That's just what he's telling us. I started with a blank slate, but I had a purpose. I had a goal. I had man that I was wanting to create, but I had to take the, the chaos that I had given order to. Now I have to take the order and, and, and micro-create, micro-manipulate. I had to make the space habitable for my most important creation. And that is verse 7. Man to inhabit. So after he had uh, created everything, there was nothing there, was no wild vegetation, none of that, I took and I formed man out of the dust from the ground. And I breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Order for mankind. Could God have created a, a special being, a special creation that could have survived in the chaos of space and all that? Yes, God could have done anything, but that's not what we have. That's not what he did. He created, he ordered, and he provided for man so man could live. By hand, God provided form for the man. It says he pulled the dust up. He, he, he took the mud from the, either the, the falling mist or the flooding uh, river, whatever, uh, whichever way it exactly was. He took the clay, he took the mud, and by hand, he formed the outside. And we know he, his creative power was such that he could have spoken life into that form. By hand he formed him. He could have spoken by word life, but he didn't. By hand he formed him. By breath God provided life for the man. He did more than just say it. He gave it. It's a little bit of a foreshadow of the cross where life was given because in God's omniscience, in God's omnipotence, he could have spoken forgiveness. He could have spoken life. He could have just said, never mind, new, new story, new, uh, new rules, everybody's forgiven. Or you're forgiven in such a way, or you're forgiven if you do these things. But instead of speaking, he breathed, or in the case of Jesus, breathed his last. He gave his breath for life. 
It's just an image of what God does here. God gives his breath for the life of man. By hand, God provided form. By breath, God provided life. So what does that say? Let's go back to our wandering Israelites for just a second. What does that say to him, to them? As they wander this desert that to them sounds or looks a lot like what before Adam sound, uh, uh, looked like. Let me say that sentence again. As they wander in the desert, that looks like what Adam saw and that sounds like in their ears. No wild brush, no irrigation, no just sand and dirt and nothing everywhere. And we have the intimacy of the covenant God, Yahweh Elohim. They already knew him as Yahweh. That's how they worshipped him. That's how Moses talked about him. That was the name they used for him. And God says, Elohim did all of this ordering, and now Yahweh, your covenant God, your relational God, provided. Yes, it looked crazy, just dirt and nothing else. Nothing grew, nothing was uh, edible, and God provided. What does that say to the wanderers? Well, Moses is saying God has not changed. God formed, God created, God ordered, God provided for this one man. He is going to do the same with you. And we know he did it with Israel to get down to one man, Jesus. I, it, it, it's one of these things that I wish you could see inside of my head, just this part. The rest of it, and. Because in, in, in my head, and I, I know I do this with my hands every time I preach on Genesis or Old Testament, I'm trying to get you to see the, the universal nature of creation and how much and how expansive and how, how huge and, and how nearly limitless it was all to get to Adam, to then begin to populate the earth. To, to, to uh, subdue the earth, to use the earth. God created and he formed and he provided for man and then mankind. And then he took mankind and all of this population that we see in uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And out of that population he calls one, Abraham. We're down to one again. And then he takes Abraham. You're going to be a father of many nations. And he has one kid. That ain't the best start. Um, but he takes Isaac and he says, father of nations, and well, you, you're going to have two kids. Still not great, um, but nonetheless, the, the one kid, the, and the, the nation grows. Israel grows. And you know why? It, and they're, they're special. Out of all the world, out of all the populations, out of all the nations, he pulls out one. So we zoom in so that we can begin to zoom out again. And we see this nation grow and all the problems and all the stuff and Babylon and Persia and all that and, 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 and the disobedience and the, uh, the, 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 the polytheism, the worship of idols. And he does all these things to get them to know it's just me, one God, no other gods, just one God. Okay, we got it. Good. Whoosh, one man again. And that one man then is for all the world. And I could keep going because it's 2,000 years and however much longer as that expands and now we're 8 billion people and, and we grow and we grow until someday, one day, one man 
comes back. And God is focusing. That's right. You can clap. Jesus is coming back. And that's a good thing. So the Israelites in their desert, in their wandering, in their wilderness, look at this story and go, God provided. He'll still provide. But he wasn't just providing food. That's part of this. He, uh, he provided, uh, uh, he, he took man, put him in this location. But verses 8 through 14, we see nearness and necessities. Again, we could zoom in on this uh, a little bit on these passages and spend a lot of time here, but I want us to get the, the overhead view a little bit. It says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden or at Eden or near Eden. The garden wasn't Eden. Eden was a place and that place had a garden. And uh, it was on the edge of Eden. Uh, it, it, it appears, it, the way it's written, that Eden was God's residence. That's where he lived. Um, is that heaven? Is that, who knows? The image that he's giving, though, is that I have Eden, and it is a source of everything. The rivers, the four rivers, come out of Eden, and one of them waters the garden. That, but, but all this good stuff comes from it. We get this picture of God in his provision. The garden is the image of God in his provision. I put all the stuff in the garden for you. The rivers, the water, all that comes out. It waters everything. Gold and bdellium. And I don't even know what bdellium is, but we get a lot of it apparently. It was really good stuff. And, and onyx. And of course, these are all things that were in the, if you remember, they were in the high priest's ephod. It was stones that were supposed to uh, be there. So when he mentions it to Israel, they're like, oh, yeah, that's okay. They're, they're making those connections. But it had everything. This, this, this area, this garden outside of Eden, and, and pretty clear that the garden wasn't this whole area because the, the rivers are talking about all of Iraq, current modern-day Iraq, maybe way up into the, the north, north of Turkey into Europe, uh, the, the uh, Gihon River into Cush, that's Ethiopia, that's south of Egypt. That wasn't all the garden. That, all that wasn't, that, this was just how much God provided, how big his provision is. And that's what the Israelites would have heard. He made all that? He, that was all him? And, and in that or near that, on the outside of that, we have the garden where Adam is. He is he's much bigger, Israelites, he's much bigger than your desert wandering. You're wandering around here in Arabia, in this little, this little one little space. This, all this, you're just on the edge of what God has for you. They were right on the edge of what God had for them when they were disobedient. But... Anyway, this, this Eden, this, this garden had all the water, all the food, all the natural resources that, that they needed. Everything. And verse 15 says, it was all there for Adam. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden 
of Eden, the garden near Eden, the garden that is a part of Eden. It's for him. Here's your spot, Adam. And you get this picture of of Adam living just outside of where God lives, just butted up to it. And and that's the picture we get in uh, chapter 3, right? When it says, and it was the cool of the evening when God would come out and walk around the garden with Adam and Eve. That's pretty cool. That's where Adam lived. He had nearness. He had all the necessities, but he had nearness to God. And what was the point of the nearness? Not just to be near, but to work. And work was service, and I put slash worship, because it can be both things. He placed him in the garden, verse, uh, yeah, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. If you remember last year, y'all probably don't. If you remember last year, that's the same phrase that the Levites had as their um, uh, command in the temple, to work it and watch over it. They had responsibilities to take care. They had things to do, and that those things to do were to take care of the temple. For what? For worship. Or in, in this case, it would have been the tabernacle as they wandered around the wilderness. It's the same thing Adam had to do. Take care of the garden as a place of service and worship. Service to and worship of God. And I, I said this last year as well. Work is good. Work isn't a curse. Some of our jobs may be a curse sometimes, but, but work, labor, isn't a curse. Toil is the curse. The, the, the creation fighting against us in our labor, that's the curse. But that wasn't what Adam experienced. He didn't have to pull weeds and fight briars and those sorts of things when he tended this garden. He didn't have to worry about uh, droughts. He didn't have to worry about disease and, and pests. taking. He just was there. He was working it. He was doing the things that were necessary. All the bugs were created, so bugs that eat things were still eating things. Uh, so maybe he did have to worry about uh, monarch worms eating the potato plants. I don't know. They don't eat potato plants? Well, potato worms then. Make something up. Whatever, you know, they, they, they still did the things, but he just had that job. It wasn't a curse. Work isn't supposed to be a curse. Work for God isn't a curse. Service to God isn't a curse. It's hard, yeah. Nobody said it wasn't. I'm going to assume... That some of what Adam had to do was hard, but it wasn't a curse. He didn't just get to sit around and, and say, you know, ooh, grow, and it grew. And he wasn't God. He, he had to deadhead the, the, the flowers or, or whatever the things, pull the... You know, he, he had to do all that stuff. But it was worship. See, we get it the other way around. We think work is what's important... 
Play, it's what's fun, and service to God is the toilsome, tiresome, get-in-my-way-of-everything-else-I-want-to-do. You know, church isn't worth it. Connect groups aren't worth it. There's no point. Service to God isn't worth it. I don't have time. I've got other things. Romans 12, 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. You can't be a sacrifice and live. Well, that's, that's true. That's why we are buried with him in death and raised to walk in the newness of life, which is Romans chapter 8. Paul's already covered that. So we're dead and we're alive, so now we're brand new. We're a new creature, a new creation. We are now a creation coming out of the water that is both living and dying, or actually living and dead. We are dead to our old self, and we are alive to Christ. So when he says in chapter 12, present yourselves a living sacrifice, he means it. You're dead. You're on the altar. You are not your own. The, the sacrifice doesn't get to decide the means of death, the time of death, or what happens after death. You're just the sacrifice, but we are a living sacrifice. We don't get to uh, decide the means or the time or what happens afterward, but we willingly put ourselves on the altar for God's use. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, so we are preparing ourselves for that, which is the same image we get of Old Testament sacrifice, an unblemished animal, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your, uh, and I've forgotten the adjective that's used, reasonable, worship, service, your translations are going to differ. You know why? Because it's the same thing and they don't know which word to put Service worship, service slash worship. God's telling the Israelites, you, uh, you're wandering because you didn't, you didn't present your body as a living sacrifice. You got to the gate of the promised land and you said, Ooh, that looks tough, I don't want to do that, we're not going to. Ooh, that looks hard, I don't want to serve God in that way. No, I don't want to put myself on that altar. God's telling them right now, the whole purpose, the whole reason I created man was for worship service. A worship service. Hmm. The whole reason. And y'all want to go your own way. Well, you can go your own way. Go your own way. They didn't hear it. Um, but you're going to fail. You're not going to succeed in serving. Work and service, service and worship, this is our perfect relationship with God. That's what God is telling them about Adam. In the garden, perfect relationship, perfect work, perfect service, perfect worship. I'll just get a little ahead of me and, and say, chapter 3, where were you? We hid because we messed up the worship service. We, we just we fouled it up big time. We, we, we couldn't come to church naked. 
I mean, that's, that's what they were saying. I, I, we couldn't. We knew we were ashamed. We, you, you knew too much. You saw too much of us. They ruined the perfect relationship. Well, the relationship will n- n- not be perfect again in this life. Yet, we are told to present our bodies a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is our reasonable act of worship service. And we don't. But let's, let's wait. We'll, we'll talk about that some more later. Verses 16 and 17, God didn't just say, you're on your own. He didn't give freedom unlimited. He took the man, he placed it in there, but he commanded the man, told him, Eat anything, including the tree of life. Eat anything except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. The tree of life, you read different accounts. We don't know exactly whether man was created immortal, just would have lived forever had not he eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and the tree of life was more symbolic. I mean, it was there, obviously. I don't mean to say that the tree was symbolic. I believe there was a literal tree. Um, but did he have immortality anyway, and uh, the tree was just symbolic of that immortality? Or did Adam and Eve have to eat from the tree in order to continue living? I lean toward the last one. I, I lean toward they had to eat from it because when they got kicked out of the garden, it was to keep them from the tree. So I'm, I'm going to go with the whole, it was a magical fruit, uh, that whatever it was that, that kept them alive. But regardless, uh, well, actually not regardless, since that was literal, magical, to use a not a great term, miraculous, how about that? Miraculous tree. Tree of knowledge of good and evil is the same thing. It too was a miraculous tree. Literal fruit, literal leaves, literal limbs. Because to give man freedom, there had to be boundaries. And that, that flies in the face of what we think freedom is. But, but we know freedom, unchecked freedom, is, is anarchy. Now, we're sinful, right? So, so that, that stands to reason that we would abuse freedom. But God placed the choice in front of them and said, look. He, he, had, he had angels that, that had a choice but had no opportunity to re- return from the choice. They had a choice to serve or not. Satan chose not to and took a, third of the, took a third of the angels with him. They chose not to, but they had no opportunity to return. God says, I'm giving you the same choice. I'm not going to force you into relationship with me. You are going to have complete freedom to choose me or this fruit. But your freedom, I'm telling you to bound that freedom. I have bounded that freedom. And there is comfort in that. 
If you don't believe me, uh, uh, ask your teenagers, ask your children. No, they didn't like your boundaries. But sometimes they like your boundaries. Sometimes they know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to that place. But I don't want to tell my friends that I don't want to go to that place. So what do they do? Blame mom and daddy. Mom and daddy said I can't go. So <laughs> I really, really want to, but I, they said I can't. So I'm not. They want that boundary. We're the same way. There, there's a whole, uh, I mean, I looked up numerous psychological ideas. There's a whole realm of study about freedom needing boundaries. It goes all the way back to the Greeks. It is something innate in us that freedom, pure, unbounded freedom is unhealthy and scary, and we react against that. God knew how he made us, and he put boundaries up. But so Adam could have had almost everything that was there. And he chose the one thing that he couldn't have. Well, Michael, Eve chose it. You're right. Where is Eve at this point of the narrative as it is presented? Right there. Still inside him. She's not around. We don't have a record of God telling Eve anything about the fruit. As it is presented, he told Adam and then created Eve. This is all Adam's fault. We like to blame it on the woman. Well, the woman ate the fruit. Well, it also says he was standing, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he was standing right there when she ate it. She turned and gave some to her husband didn't walk half a mile back to the house and give some to her husband. She turned and get It's Adam's fault, y'all. And then death follows this disobedience. If you eat it, you will certainly die. They knew what death was. That was, uh, they, they, that was not... Um, not an unknown idea to them. They were aware of it. You will certainly die. Because the next verse, he says, it's not good to be alone. We're going to talk about that next week. Relationship. The beginning of relationship. Beginning of family. All right. So what did the wandering Israelites hear? Let's get back to that. Like I said, there were things I wanted to discuss here. We could have spent a lot more time uh, parsing some of it, but I, it, I, I don't. That, that's not vital for us this morning. What's necessary for this morning, I believe, is what the Israelites heard. As Moses recounts Scripture to them, as God has told Moses and Moses tells them, the Israelites hear that God created a space. God created a space. Let's just call it a promised land. Use a term I make up. God created a space. And that space was for mankind. That, that space was very intentional. That space was very uh, um, uh, purposeful. It was not accidental. It was a space that God had 
set aside, and then he had mankind to fill it. But more important than the space, more important than the garden, more important than the stuff, was that space for mankind was next to himself. I want you right beside me, God was saying. These are the Israelites hearing it. Hmm, God created a space, let's call it a promised land, for a, a people, maybe even a group of people, right next to him. We're going to see what he does in the promised land, or if you've read before, you, the temple and the nation and the, the capital, all that, right next to him, the mountain of God. God created a space for mankind next to himself that had what was needed. Remember, the Israelites didn't go in because they were scared. Why were they scared? They saw the land flowing with milk and honey and the bunches of grapes that were so big that two men had to carry them. But they heard that there were giants in the land. And they didn't have what they needed to defeat the giants. Yes, they did. They had what they needed. They had God. Because God had provided what they needed. Caleb and um, Joshua, we got it. Look, Lord's on our side. Let's go take it. That's ours. It is, it is our land, our space for us. Let's go. Eventually they got there, didn't they? And, and, and maybe, maybe when they're hearing this message again, they're, they're on the doorstep. They're just across the Jordan, about to cross in and conquer. Moses is now dead, and, and they are going to take it. And these words are ringing in their ears. God had created a space for us, for mankind, next to himself. It has all that we're need, needing. And they go in, and they intend to work and worship for God. Because that's what it was created for, Eden, the garden. That was for work and worship, for service. For a worship service, and then they get into the promised land and it becomes about themselves. But that's, that's really getting ahead of the story. They, 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 they're, they're not there yet. They're standing there, they're looking, and they look across the Jordan and, and they see freedom. They see everything they've wanted. They, they've been away from Egypt now for 40 years. We are free. We can do what we want. No, there are boundaries. Because we've got Exodus and the Ten Commandments and Leviticus. We, they, they've got all the boundaries. And they won't go into the promised land and they break all the boundaries. God created a space for mankind next to himself that had what was needed for all work and worship with freedom and boundaries. And Adam messed it up. And then he said, come to the promised land where I've got all that for you. And they messed it up. God still provided manna and quail and water. And God calls us today and says, come, I have created a space for you. With everything you need, it is for you. It is next to me that has what you need for work and for worship with freedom and boundaries. And we say, we don't like the boundaries. 
We have an eternal garden where sin will never again enter, but we don't want the boundary of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Or maybe we do. Maybe we want the promised land. Maybe we've got all the faith to cross the Jordan, but when we get there, we don't want to be obedient to the one who brought us there. We don't want to dance with the one that brung us. And so, as believers, we wander. And the message of Genesis 2 calls to us again. I've created a space for you next to me with everything you need for worship, for service, with freedom, abundant life. Take my yoke, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He who is free in Christ is free indeed. And boundaries. Take up your cross and follow me. Obey every word that I have commanded you. And we... Nah. Not today, Jesus. And we eat the fruit one more time. Because that's... That's what it is, right? God's design, His plan... It's perfect. We see it in creation. And then sin enters it. Sin messes it up. And it creates all sorts of brokenness that we think we're going to fix, that we think we're going to do okay. That's what the Israelites did in the promised land. Well, if we worship this God, and if we sacrifice our child to this God, and if we do this over here, if we try to bring all these, well, then we'll fix all these problems. And God says, no, no, your ways aren't going to fix the brokenness. We do it today with our self-help and our, 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 our Be Better books and our uh, intermittent fasting and our, um, our influencers on TikTok and all this stuff. And we, we're going to, yes, we're, and no, we're not. We're just going to break things more until we come near, until we go back to the garden, until we go to the one who created order and made the offer of provision in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we repent and we believe and we begin to recover and pursue God's design again. We're already sinners. We're already broken. That's going to break down again. But that's why there's grace. Grace that covers all of our sin. Grace that, uh, that, that fills every hole and repairs every break. And grace that is new in the morning and grace that never lets us go. A space created for us to be near to Him in permanent worship service. That's the message of chapter 2, this first half of chapter 2. You have a next step to take this morning. You need to respond to that gospel message. You uh, need, may need to accept salvation. Take up your cross. Leave your life and follow Jesus. That's what salvation is. It's leaving everything behind to follow him. Maybe you need to follow in obedience, in baptism, in submitting to God, conforming your life to him. 
obedience in, in the garden, obedience to him. No more wandering, no more uh, grumbling, coming back to him. Maybe your next step of obedience is to join the church. Maybe your next step of obedience is to, to give. This is going to be your opportunity as well to, to give if, if that's what uh, the Lord is leading you to do. And I think I didn't put that slide in again this week, so there's no QR code on the screen, but you can go to our website or you can use the offering boxes in the back. Now's your, your time for your acceptable worship service to lay your life on the altar to trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in all of your wisdom, in all of your foreknowledge, in all of your, your certainty of, of, of what would be, you, you, you provided knowing we were going to mess it up. You provided knowing Israel would wander. You provided Christ knowing that some would refuse him completely. You provided salvation knowing that we would abuse it. Yet you continue to provide grace upon grace. Your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, we thank you for that. God, as we hear your message of provision this morning, we know every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we are very thankful for all the stuff, fun stuff, needed stuff. But most importantly, Lord, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, the most necessary thing in our lives salvation in him. God, may we respond in faith this morning. Someone here who's never trusted Jesus, may today be their day of salvation as they begin to repent, believe, and pursue your design for their lives. And God, may we rest in your provision when we're wandering, when trials come, when problems arise and we don't see a way out, we know the manna is coming, the quail are flying in, the water's just behind the rock. Lord, we know that you are provider because you love us and that's what you said you'd do. May we see you today as our provider of everything we need to serve you to, for worship, for life, worship and service in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be down here to my right, Chelsea be to my left, a couple of men will be in the back if you'd like some prayer. The altar's open for you to just come and give it to the Lord if that's what you'd like. As we stand, as we sing, as we worship, do business with God this morning.